Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, July 28th. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy you've joined us tonight. In our top story, our guest, Beth Vandekoy from Greater Columbus Right to Life, will talk about two upcoming votes in Ohio that are a matter of life and death. Police in D.C. are looking for abortion activists who assaulted pro-lifers outside Planned Parenthood there. And an arrest warrant has been issued for a Michigan abortionist who allegedly ran over a pro-lifer in Saginaw. I'll have those stories and more in Abortion in the News. A trial date has been set in the Justice Department's classified documents case against former President Donald Trump. And presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis is scaling back his campaign staff. I'll have all the goings on inside and outside the Beltway in political news in a nutshell. At the end of our show, you'll meet Pastor John Lewis, who will tell us about a very special baby save outside of Planned Parenthood in Memphis. You won't want to miss it. Abortion advocates in Ohio learned on Tuesday that they submitted enough valid signatures to place a proposed amendment on the ballot for the general election on November 7th. The amendment would invent a right to abortion in the state constitution, and by virtue of its very careful wording, will eliminate parental rights and other checks on abortion. But there's a special election in Ohio coming up in just 11 days, and the, and the outcome could impact the November 7th ballot referendum. Joining us tonight to tell us everything we need to know about Ohio is Beth Vanderkoy, Executive Director of Greater Columbus Right to Life and a member of the Protect Women Ohio Coalition. Welcome to the show, Beth. Well, good evening and thank you. Well, Beth, could you tell us about issue one um, in the August 8th special election and why is it so important? Oh, absolutely. So issue one on August 8th will give Ohio voters the opportunity to decide if Ohio should continue to be the easiest state in the nation for special interests and extremist groups to use paid signature gatherers and deceptive ad campaigns to gain constitutional guarantees of their woke agenda. All uh, issue one comes after more than a decade of input through a bipartisan commission to address this growing problem in Ohio. And so while the anti-parent and anti-life amendment that will be before voters in November is one example of why Ohioans should, should support issue one, it has broad-based support from groups that traditionally have not opposed abortion, the Chamber of Commerce, gun rights organizations, sportsmen's groups, agriculture, and more. Why? Because Ohio could soon be facing irresponsible minimum wage proposals elimination of qualified immunity, and out-of-touch animal rights and environmental regulations that would be enshrined in our Constitution. Now, don't get me wrong. These are certainly matters for a policy discussion, but they are things that belong in Ohio's laws, not in our Constitution. So early voting for the August 8th election, I think, is, or is ongoing. And there's, I've been reading that there's unprecedented turnout. Is a, good, is a high turnout good for the pro-life cause? Yeah, early voting started on July 11th, and I will say there has been a lot of enthusiasm from proponents and opponents alike. 
So Ohio is a place where it is easy to vote and hard to cheat, whether you're voting early in person, absentee via mail, or on election day. And the fact that the ratio seems so close, um, not, not just high turnout, but high turnout from people who are traditionally identified as being more conservative or less conservative, um, that's a good sign because historically, uh, early voting skews to less conservative voters. But at the same time, we are taking nothing for granted and we are encouraging everybody to get out there and uh, to cast their vote to protect our Constitution and protect our children. Well, ProBoots found out this week that they have enough valid signatures to get a proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot in November. Can you tell us about that amendment and how the results on the special election can impact it? Yeah, so first of all, the, the main change that issue one would do is it would elevate the standard to require a 60% uh, vote before someone can amend the Ohio Constitution. Uh, this, this doesn't impact uh, you know, the initiative for changing the laws. Um, it also doesn't uh, change the, uh, the referendum to repeal something that the General Assembly does. So it would require, rather than a simple majority, a 60% vote, and it would require that they go out and get signatures from all 88 counties, not just half of them. Um, but what you really need to know about the Ohio Amendment uh, is that it is it was deliberately written by the ACLU to be intentionally broad and deceptive. So if they are successful, it will mean that we are powerless to stop abortions through all nine months of pregnancy, including painful and cruel elective abortions in the third trimester. Overnight, it would wipe out critical health and safety provisions that protect women and unborn children. And it would eliminate parental involvement before children engage in life-altering procedures like abortion, sterilization, or even radical sex change surgeries. So if the August 8th election goes our way, if people vote yes and it passes, then does that 60% threshold go into effect immediately? Uh, the 60% threshold goes into effect immediately and all constitutional amendments, including the November, uh, would be required to hit 60%. Well, um, Beth, what, what can people inside um, Ohio do? And, and of course, uh, many of our viewers are not in, in Ohio. So what, what can we do to help? Well, the first, so in our movement, prayer is not a platitude. It is a life changing instrument. And so the first thing that we are inviting everyone to do is to join us in prayer. Uh, and if you are in Ohio, join us in voting yes in August and no in November. And if you're not in Ohio, you can talk to your friends and family who may be. Uh, lastly, if you can, consider supporting the work that we are doing either at Greater Columbus Right to Life or at Protect Women Ohio financially. The other side is already bragging that they are ready to spend $35 million uh, to put these insane policies in our constitution. And we have to combat that. So if you're in a place that you can help us to, to try to beat them back a little bit and match them, you can visit www.protectwomenohio.com. 
Yeah. Right, great. Well, there are, our prayers are definitely with Ohio, and we thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight to explain all this to us. Thanks so much for having me, and have a great evening. Yes, you too. Thank, thank you. you, Beth. Good night. Firefighters in Kokomo, Indiana, heard their own address broadcast on the emergency services radio and realized the alarm had been set off by the station's baby box. The 12th baby to be safely surrendered this year, the 5th in Indiana, was found July 17th in the city about 60 miles north of Indianapolis. TV station WHR covered the story. It wasn't your typical call or location. They said 215 West uh, Superior, and that's the station. They said a medical alarm. I got to thinking, I was like, that's, that's the baby box. Sure enough, a two-day-old baby surrendered in this box. Recruit James Schaefer being the first to pick her up. To be able to hold her in my arms and know that she's protected now. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a special moment. It's the first baby surrendered since the box was installed in 2020. We weekly test this. We make sure it works. Um, we're testing the alarm system, make sure that it's physically operational. Never knowing when it will be needed, but thankful when it is. The 33rd baby saved in a safe haven baby box in the last five years. Founder Monica Kelsey says and the box is meant to be a last resort. So far, 12 babies have been surrendered this year, five of them in Indiana. It never gets old because we know that the alternative is something that we see in other states that don't have baby boxes all the time. And so now that this has become a movement across this country where states are looking at Indiana and saying, what are you doing and how can we be a part of that? Um, it, it's encouraging, it's really encouraging. The parent in this surrender also leaving a note, sharing her love for her baby. One of the hardest things to say, I want what's best for my child and it's not me. And, and that's heroic and it's selfless. A difficult decision now creating a new beginning. That's what we want to do. We want to save people if they're in bad spots and we want to be that person to protect them. I mean, that's, that's what we live for. In Kokomo, Lauren Kostick, 13 News. An arrest warrant has been issued for a Michigan abortionist who police say ran over a pro-life activist with his car. 88-year-old Theodore Rommel broke Bar Mark Zimmerman's leg by running over it and then backing over it a second time. Police were called to the scene of the June 23rd incident, but despite the corroboration of four eyewitnesses, Rommel was not taken into custody that day. Zimmerman joined us on Pro-Life Primetime News to talk about the incident, and Michigan pro-life activist Lynn Mills was in touch to let us know that Rommel once hit her with his car and he was arrested and charged that time. He was sentenced to just six months on probation. We'll be keeping an eye on the Saginaw story. The Iowa Supreme Court agreed this week to hear Republican Governor Kim Reynolds' appeal of a lower court order blocking the state's heartbeat law, which Reynolds signed into law this month. I look forward to continuing to defend the heartbeat law and protect the right to life in court, State Attorney General Brenna Byrd said in a statement. Baltimore is moving to position itself as an abortion-friendly destination. Mayor Brandon Scott and the Baltimore Civic Fund announced this week that it will give grants up to $30,000 to abortion businesses to allow them to hire more staff and help more out-of-state women pay for travel expenses so they can abort their babies in Charm City. Some of the women calling New Mexico's new taxpayer-supported hotline that helps them find abortion businesses are being referred to the Satanic Temple, which recently opened what it describes as the world's first religious abortion clinic. The New Mexico Alliance for Life made the discovery, which left its executive director, Elisa Martinez, wondering if people were being told they were being referred to a satanic ritualistic abortion center. 
A Christian nurse who works at a veterans center in Texas has won a huge victory against the Biden administration rule that turned Veterans Administration hospitals into killing centers. Stephanie Carter filed a lawsuit against the rule last year, saying she objects on moral and religious grounds to taking part in abortion. She initially requested a religious accommodation, but was told by her supervisor there was no process in place for the VA to consider her request. But the VA revised its plan and will now allow healthcare workers with religious objections to abortions to opt out of participating in them. Carter has since withdrawn her lawsuit. Republicans in the House and Senate want American taxpayers to receive a child tax credit for children in the womb. Iowa Representative Ashley Hinton on Monday introduced the Providing for Life Act, a companion bill to one introduced in the Senate last month by Florida Senator Marco Rubio. The bill would expand the refundable child tax credit to up to $3,500 per child under the age of 18 and $4,500 per child under the age of 6. Currently, parents may claim up to $2,000 in tax credits per dependent child. The bill also would expand tax credits to unborn children and allow parents to claim the tax credit in the prior year during the pregnancy. At least one parent would have to be employed to receive the credit. Nevada Democrats Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Representative Susie Lee have introduced a bill that would use taxpayer funds to make it easier for women to find abortion mills. The Reproductive Health Patient Navigator Act seeks to establish a federal grant program that would give money to abortion funds and community health clinics that make it easy, easier to access, quote, vital health care services. The bill will never pass the Senate. And finally, the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, a coalition of pro-abortion Democrat governors, had its inaugural meeting in Los Angeles this week. The abortion extremists gloated over pro-abortion victories in their states and strategized ways to ensure that women in states where babies are protected from abortion can continue to kill their children. The alliance has received startup funding from the California Wellness Foundation and the Rosenberg Foundation, two left-leaning advocacy groups. And that's Abortion in the News. A federal judge has dealt a blow to former President Donald Trump's push to indefinitely delay his classified documents trial. The former president will now stand trial in May of next year on charges that he mishandled classified material, according to a court filing Friday. Judge Aileen Cannon scheduled the trial for May 20, 2024, a compromise date later than prosecutors had sought, but sooner than the indefinite delay requested by Trump. Trump is giving yet another major Iowa presidential campaign event a miss next month. Neither the 77-year-old 2024 Republican frontrunner nor his former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie are scheduled to be part of Hawkeye State Governor Kim Reynolds' fair side chats at the Iowa State Fair as Trump continues his feud with Reynolds over her decision not to endorse him, and Christie focuses his attention on New Hampshire. President Trump looks forward to interacting with tens of thousands of Iowans at the fair in an open and unfiltered setting, campaign spokesperson Stephen Chang told the Post of the apparent snub to Reynolds. A dozen other GOP contenders will sit down with Reynolds at the annual celebration, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, radio host Larry Elder, former Representative Will Hurt, businessman Ryan Brinkley, and entrepreneur Perry Johnson. 
I am so proud that I get to have the opportunity to introduce these candidates to Iowans at the event, so near and dear to my heart, Reynolds said in a statement. She continued, the Iowa State Fair showcases the best of Iowa, from our people to our culture and wonderful agricultural industry, and it's the perfect venue for a conversation with the candidates. Christie has exhibited little interest in the Hawkeye State, instead betting big on New Hampshire's more moderate electorate to boost his campaign. We don't have an Iowa operation, and we don't have any plans to have an Iowa operation, nor do we have any immediate plans to go there, Christie spokesman Carl Rickett told Politico on Monday. Trump, on the other hand, has rolled through Iowa multiple times and is the clear frontrunner in the latest Real Clear Politics aggregate of state polling. The former president has attended the fair in the past, famously offering children rides in his helicopter eight years ago. Reynolds insists she will attend Trump events in the future despite the tiff. Thus far, the Iowa governor has remained steadfastly neutral in the GOP race and attended events featuring several candidates, including Trump. Nobody is entitled to this nomination, DeSantis told conservative Boston radio host Howie Carr earlier this month. You have got to earn the nomination in doing things like the family leader event in Iowa, doing things like debates. They're important parts of the process. The Iowa State Fair is scheduled to run from August 10th to the 20th, while the Republican caucuses have been set for January 15th, 2024. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, and Chris Christie all appear to have met the qualifications to attend the first GOP primary debate next month in Milwaukee after having reached the polling thresholds set by the Republican National Committee and the candidates say the fundraising requirements too. Missing from that list so far is former Vice President Mike Pence, though Pence insists he will have enough donors to make the debate and has already drawn enough support in early polls. The RNC announced criteria in June that the candidates must meet on polling, fundraising, status and pledging in order to earn a spot on stage on August 23rd. Candidates have until 48 hours before the debate to qualify. The party has not yet publicly confirmed which candidates have qualified, though officials have said which polls are eligible to qualify candidates. Donor numbers so far are based on campaign statements alone. What remains uncertain is who all will participate in the debate, set to be aired by Fox News. With more than half of the major Republican candidates, including Pence and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, still working to qualify, frontrunner Trump has repeatedly signaled he will not attend his party's first debate, saying as recently as last week on Newsmax, if you're leading by a lot, what's the purpose of doing it? Ron DeSantis' campaign, meanwhile, has fired more than 40% of its original staff, a house cleaning that comes after concerns about how fast it spent money during its first six weeks. All told, 38 staffers have been let go from the campaign since its May 24th launch. A dozen last week and at least 26 Tuesday afternoon. The latest round was first reported by Politico. The campaign has also appointed Carl Sousa, who was already on its payroll as its chief financial officer. He will replace Melissa Power, who is leaving the campaign at the end of the month. Following a top-to-bottom review of our organization, we have taken additional, aggressive steps to streamline operations and put Ron DeSantis in the strongest position to win this primary and defeat Joe Biden, Janera Peck, DeSantis's campaign manager, said in a statement. 
Governor DeSantis is going to lead the great American comeback, and we are ready to hit the ground running as we head into an important month of the campaign. And that's political news in a nutshell. Pastor John Lewis helped to save an unborn child who had only moments to live. The experience would change him forever. It all happened in July 2021 when Pastor Lewis was standing in front of a Planned Parenthood in Memphis, Tennessee. We have Pastor Lewis with us tonight to tell us the details. Welcome to the show, Pastor. Hello. So, Pastor, thank you. So, hi, hi. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Can you tell us the, the circumstances that led to you meeting Brandon and then his fiance Haley? Sure. I was uh, standing on the uh, sidewalk in front of Planned Parenthood in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, I noticed a gentleman sitting over next to the building in his car, sitting halfway out of his car, his feet on the ground, and I knew that that was most likely an abortion. Then the female was inside, and I hesitated uh, to just ask him to pray with me, and uh, it's what I felt like I needed to do. There were three or four escorts going back and forth and just kind of like sharks, just uh, making sure that I didn't talk to him. And I, <clears throat> I finally said, I don't know what I'm waiting on. And so I said, hey, sir, this is Pastor John. Uh, can I pray with you today? And he immediately, immediately turned, looked up at me and said, I'm never going to uh, going to turn down a prayer. And so he walked right through every one of those escorts and walked over to me shook my hand, was had a very warm personality, uh, although a bit somber, and told me that he that his uh, fiance was there for an abortion. Her name was Haley. And I began to talk to him about uh, how God had a plan for him as the protector of that family, a plan for Haley, a plan for the baby. And uh, he began to text on his phone, and I thought he wasn't paying any attention to me. So I kind of became a little bit aggravated, I guess, at that point and frustrated. And then in the midst of me talking, he said he looked up at me and he said, well, she said that she's already been medicated for the abortion, which kind of woke me up because I, I thought, OK, he actually has been paying attention to me and he's been texting her on the inside. And and so I knew time was of the essence at that point that this this baby had just minutes to live. And I began to talk to him about, as a man, calling to the man in him to protect, to provide for that baby, that it was his child. And he was very intensely listening. And what I didn't know is that on the inside, Haley was going through her own struggle. That night, I didn't know this until literally months later, that she had prayed the night before with tears in her eyes at her home for someone to be there on the sidewalk to tell her there was another way to tell her that this was wrong, uh, to take the life of her child. And uh, it, it's surprising how often we hear that on the sidewalk. And um, as the uh, the lady was coming in, the nurse was, I hesitate to call them nurses, but technically I guess they are. She was coming in to give her the medication that would stop the heart of the baby. She got a text from Brandon on the outside and he said, hey, there's a guy out here that you need to talk to. His name's Pastor John. And instantly she said later that she knew uh, that uh, God told her that this is the person you prayed for last night. Get out of here. And she immediately told him that she couldn't go through with it. And they very frustrated. We've heard it so many times. They get uh, nasty and very frustrated. They escorted her to the front of the building. 
And as they're doing that, I'm, I'm still calling to Brandon. And he said uh, he didn't want her to her to, uh, her to have the abortion, um, that uh, he wanted to be a father to the baby. And, and I said, well, why is she wanting? Uh, why does she think she needs to have it? And he said, she doesn't think I'm going to be here to raise it. And I went for broke and I said, I'll tell you what you do, Brandon. And I said, you go in there in front of God, the doctor, the nurses, the other mothers, everybody, and you pledge your fealty to her, your allegiance uh, and your love for her. And you tell her that you're not going anywhere, that you are going to perfect, protect and provide for them and that uh, you will always be there. And he looked at me real intensely and I thought he I didn't know if he was listening or if he was getting aggravated at what I was saying. And he said, that is exactly what I'm going to do which surprised me. And he turned and just as he turned to go inside, Haley comes around the corner of the building with her hands over her mouth, just like that and, and uh, crying. And they met in the middle of the parking lot and all the escorts were circling around them. Um, very frustrated at, at what was going on because they knew that a baby had just been uh, rescued. And um, so that's, that's how we, uh, we met. And they came over to me. We prayed. We went over to a Christian resource center. Uh, she got her ultrasound and they came out all smiles and uh, they never looked back after that. So it was um, that was that was some day. Wow. <laughs> well, you couldn't have scripted that any better, Pastor. That was uh, quite, quite an amazing uh, story. So did you hear from the couple after that initial encounter? I did talk to Brandon a couple of times. Um, my focus obviously was on Haley because we walk with the mothers if they need anything. Um, and she actually didn't need any financial help. She literally just needed somebody to be there on the sidewalk to say there's another way. And we did talk. Uh, and then she sent me a, a picture of the day little Mason was born and then shortly after that, she just disappeared. I didn't know where she went, what happened. Had I said something to upset her, what? So I just went on about the ministry. And uh, a year later, after the baby was born, although I didn't realize it was a year later, I was standing on the sidewalk and uh, the, the folks from Memphis Coalition for Life had gone home for the day and I, I was there by myself. And some other things had happened. We had lost a couple of mothers that, um, you know, that we thought, we had turned away from abortion and I, I was just in a very melancholy mood leaning against the fence. And, and literally the thought went across my mind. Uh, what am I doing here? What, what exactly, what statistical good am I doing? And just as that thought ran through my head, a black car zipped in front of me and into the parking lot, uh, just not very far. And I didn't instantly recognize the young lady. And she, she jumps out of the car and runs over to me and, and hugs me. And, and she said, thank you so much for saving my baby. And I was still kind of taken aback because it happened so fast. And she could tell that I didn't immediately recognize her. And she points to the baby and she says, that's Mason. And then I, I realized um, what had happened and, and she said, I've been looking for you. I lost my phone with all my contacts and I've driven past here uh, for the past nine or 10 months looking for you to be here. And today I, I, I drove by and here you were and I'm not going to ever lose touch with you again. And she hasn't. She's actually baked some cakes for some of our other young mother showers. And I got to and, and, and to 
to uh, to make it even better, the day that that she found me again was was Mason's first birthday. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so I can't I can't tell that story without getting emotional every single yeah, I, day. I, I teared up too. <laughs> so tell us about your ministry beyond the pews. What what's that about? Well, I, I abortion had always been a hot topic for me ever since I was in uh, high school. And I just didn't think I didn't know what to do about it other than vote for the guy who said he was pro-life or the or the woman and didn't seem to be working out too well. And I, I did start going to the sidewalk with my wife and, and my children. And I, I had a very angry approach. You know, there's these people that believed in killing babies. I wanted to really put it to them. And and then I met a guy from Nashville who, who changed my perspective on on that uh, into a much more loving approach, or I, th I should say God changed my perspective through him. And I started taking a very loving approach and people started responding. Uh, babies started being rescued. And then I realized this is what I'm supposed to do. This is the gospel that we walk with these women. We don't just tell them don't have the abortion. What do you need? Um, and so I had a friend say, we, we, we thought we would form an organization, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And a friend of mine said, you know, I just wish we could get people to go beyond the pews. And then that, that stuck in my head. And I said, that's what we're going to call it. We're going to call it Beyond the Pews for Life. And so what it is, it's, it tries, we try to encourage people to go beyond this glass ceiling uh, of the church pew. Stay, go to church. We, we don't discourage that. But mm -hmm go beyond this church building and, and take the gospel to the world. And that's why our motto is Luke 14, 23, you know, where it says, go into the highways and hedges. They're, they're not commanded to come to us. We're commanded to go to them. And you love people and you tell them that there is hope because our society is just full of rage and hopelessness and despair. And, and so that's what we try to do. We've, we've gone to, we've had rescues in, uh, in Illinois, um, Colorado, Tennessee, Mississippi, uh, now Kenya, Africa. We're getting ready to exp expand to Africa. Actually, we already have. We just haven't made the announcement yet. And so we just try. We bring truth, love, and humility to the world, and we don't compromise either, and uh, mostly about uh, telling people about the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Pastor, where can our viewers go to find more about uh, Beyond the Pews, and how can they help? It's um, you can go to Beyond the Pews for Life. That's like a church pew, P-E-W-S, Beyond the Pews for Life dot com. You can email me at info at Beyond the Pews for Life dot com or you can call me or text me at 901-409-5000. I would be glad to talk to you and I don't mind my number being out there at all. So um, that's how you can get in touch with me and I can I can definitely uh, be definitely glad to hear from everyone. Even if it's an encouraging word, I'd be glad to hear from you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we at Priests for Life are so grateful for the life and soul saving, soul saving work you do every day. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And I appreciate you. Good night. Good night. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priests for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Before we end, we'd like to give you some information about an event coming up in Florida. A coalition of abortion rights advocates in Florida, including Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, is set to push a ballot measure that would impose late-term abortion onto the state's constitution. If enough valid signatures are collected by February 1st, 2024, the issue will be put on the statewide ballot in the November 2024 election. 
It is important to alert your family and friends and encourage them not to sign the petition. To stop this effort from succeeding in Florida, we ask you to spread the word about an activism and campaign workshop co-sponsored by Priests for Life and the Leadership Institute. The event is on August 5th from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. in Kissimmee, Florida, and is free of charge. For information and to sign up, please go to endabortionfl.us and sign up at the link on the page. We'd love for you to attend the event, but even if you are unable to, if you could please spread the word to people who may be interested. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on Twitter at ProLife News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.